Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Acts chapter 16 and verse 6. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. After they were come to Mysia, they are said to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia, and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia, and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavoured to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis. There's a lot of strange sounding places all gathered together in that one little passage of scripture last week rather the week before it asked if you cast your mind back those who were here when we finished our last study we found that two the band of two missionaries paul and silas had expanded and a young man had joined them called timothy and we were looking at that And we speculated and wondered on how on earth Timothy managed to get through the interview stage for the Missionary Society. He seems to have been a weak, young, shy, sickly boy. He's not at all suitable for the rigours of travel among hostile lands, is he? And then we remembered that God always uses the weak things of life to confound the mighty. He mightily used Timothy. Remember that we learned that Timothy was a kind of a walking, talking, visual aid, perfectly embodying the decrees of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. For Timothy was saved by God's grace alone and yet causing offense to no one in the church. And the churches responded and they were encouraged and the congregations grew. And what happens next in Paul's missionary story is of huge importance to us, to European believers. Sometimes God closes doors. It's my first sort of point thing. And then secondly, that out there in the world, there are sinners who are aching to hear the gospel. Thirdly, we who know the Lord should be urgently seeking the Lord. Sometimes God closes doors. Verse 16, or chapter 16 and verse 6. 
We're told now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Paul and Silas and now Timothy as well, they're traveling up through what we call today Asia Minor, or what we might call Turkey, I suppose, making their way through the Roman provinces of Galatia and Phrygia, and then a decision needs to be made. They've come to a crossroads. Will they turn left and go into the small Roman province of Asia? Its capital was Ephesus. Or would they turn right and go into Bithynia? But the direction of travel would not be their decision alone. For you see, the Lord directs our paths. Isn't that true? And through the work of the Holy Spirit, they're forbidden from entering either of those districts. And today we want to ask, how did that happen? And why? How did God speak to them? Why were those doors closed to them? How would God have conveyed these messages to them? It simply says here in the scriptures that they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Kent Hughes in his commentary calls this direction through restraint. Sometimes, let's think of a few examples. Sometimes it seems that we just don't have any peace of mind about a course of action. Sometimes we just can't make our minds up and we're troubled and there's no certainty at all and perhaps that is the Lord directing our paths. Now to be fair, I don't pay a whole lot of heed to feelings. I mean you would have found that out in our house today if you were there because you know today is Valentine's Day and when I came downstairs and found that my wife hadn't made my breakfast, but had left a bowl, of, a bowl, empty bowl, on a cornflakes box. I thought at least she should have made me a fry. But no. But I did find, but I did find that there was a nice card and a wee present sitting, a cheap crossword book. But it was got to be better than the present I gave her, because it was non-existent. I don't do those sort of things. Feelings don't mean an awful lot, really. Sure they don't. They're subjective and they're highly variable. I mean, my wife doesn't need me to tell her that I love her on Valentine's Day. I told her I loved her 43 years ago when I put a ring on her finger. And if I ever change my mind, I'll let her know. (laughs) We have to be careful about feelings. Feelings can be subjective. They can change from week to week. And I think, too, that there are too many Christians who use that kind of guidance as an excuse to do exactly what they want to do. The Lord led me, or I had peace of mind about it. A woman who was going to emigrate was having some doubts. And I think maybe not only was she having some doubts, but her conscience Maybe was troubling her. For she was going quite far away to the other side of the world and she was leaving behind an elderly parent who would eventually certainly need some care. Maybe just within a few years. But the prospect of a life uh, on the other side of the world, the prospect of endless sunshine 
in Antipodean claims appealed very strongly to her. A better way of life, she said. The houses are cheaper. He gets paid more out there. Not to mention Christmas barbecues on the beach. It's got to be good, hasn't it? What's not to like? And she would deal with the nagging conscience that she was needed at home by saying that she felt that the Lord was opening this door. And then she got the real clincher. Do you know I have a piece about it? I'm not saying that you can't do that. It's just too subjective for me to think that maybe that's what's happening right here. But then when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul's talking about being at Troas and going to Macedonia. And it's not exactly this time, it's going to be later on. But he's saying, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. He had no rest in his spirit. It is quite possible, I suppose, on occasions that the Lord, as Kent Hughes says, can direct you through restraint, can hold you back from doing something in order that his will will be done. And I've no doubt that when that happens, that you will have some form of feeling about that. I leave that to you. What do you think about subjective feelings when you're making important decisions? Have, have you got a peace about using them? Sometimes it seems that we just don't have any peace of mind about a course of action. Sometimes this direction through restraint comes because of life's circumstances. One of the two of the, the commentaries I've read on this passage suggests that Paul was suffering from ill health and he must have been laid aside for a time. For at this point they note very carefully that the narrative changes from he to we. Now Luke's writing this. And Luke's writing about Paul and Silas and Timothy up until this point at Troas. And then the narrative changes and throughout Philippi, which is where they're heading next, it becomes we. Luke has joined them in Troas. And I wonder, Luke being a physician, I wonder was that because of Paul's sickness? I wonder, was it because Paul was feeling unwell? They and he become we and us. And Luke speaks of the, the next stage of this missionary journey in the first person. Is Paul unwell? We know that he had his thorn in the flesh. We know that his eyes were weak. Sometimes we're directed by God through the circumstances of life. Things change. Circumstances change. Health changes. Old age comes upon us. The commentator, Matthew Henry's commentary, gives us a number of possibilities. Matthew Henry says it was the Holy Ghost that forbade them, either by secret whispers in the minds of both of them, which when they came to compare notes they found to be the same and to come from the same spirit or by some prophets who spoke to them from the spirit. How does God speak to us today? That's the real question. God speaks to us through his word. We simply obey that message. 
We simply apply the word of God to our hearts and we know that the Holy Spirit will guide our hearts and our thoughts and will bend and mold our broken submissive wills to his sovereign will. In his providence, God directs our footsteps. And sometimes we don't even recognize his providential guidance until we look back over our lives and stand and see with wonder God's marvelous plan being worked out in our lives. Then we have an experience, something like Samuel. In 1 Samuel 7 and 12, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Can't we say that? And there are times when we look back over our lives and we say, thus far, hitherto, the Lord has helped us. How would God have conveyed these messages? Perhaps through peace of mind. Perhaps through the circumstances of life. For us today, through the inspired, infallible word of God. Another question, why would God have forbidden them? Why would God prevent these missionaries from preaching the word in places where the gospel is greatly needed? Well, there was very practical reasons, wasn't there? One person can't be everywhere. It's as simple as that. There are many people who find themselves torn between two situations, between two mission fields. One man can't be everywhere. God will raise up workers to meet the need, and our part in that is to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers into the harvest fields. Maybe God had another man specially chosen for that task, Someone prepared for it. Maybe because God's timing is always perfect. Perhaps the people in these areas had not yet been spiritually prepared to receive the word of God. We know from the teaching of Jesus that the good seed only takes root and only grows when it falls on ground that has been previously prepared. So we don't know perfectly the mind of God, do we? Our knowledge is so dim. We see through a glass darkly. We simply yield to him. We simply surrender to his will. It was that simple faith and trust in God that must have enabled Paul himself to continue through his arduous missionary journeys. It was that simple faith and trust in God that enabled him to endure sickness and discouragement and beatings and shipwrecks in prison. Writing to the Philippians, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So it has been evident that the whole palace guard, he's in prison, the whole palace guard and all the rest, so that my chains are in Christ. 
And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. It was not God's will for Paul to go into Asia at that time, simply trusting the Lord and surrendering to him is always the best course of action. But there is another reason. Perhaps it's the most important and compelling reason of all. And it's my second point. Because in Europe, there are sinners whose hearts are aching to receive the gospel, the good news. Look at verse 8. And they passed by Messiah, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. Now, this is a very important and very unique incident. Don't be expecting one of these tonight yourself. This is given in the context of Paul the Apostle. There are no apostles today. Okay, we are not apostles. It's a very important story, very important incident. If Paul's inclination to preach the gospel in Asia and Bithynia was cancelled by God through the unspecified or unrecorded to us direction of the Holy Spirit, his next assignment is delivered by a very definite form of guidance indeed, a form of direct revelation that would only have been for him in his day, in the day before the scriptures were completed. The message is clear. Come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul's in Troas at the time. It's a town near the site of the ancient city of Troy. It's mentioned in Second Corinthians where Paul, again, as I've said, talked about another later incident. He says, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened unto me by the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. That's not about this missionary journey, but about a later one when churches and grace had been established and there had been considerable trouble in Corinth. And there's a church at Troas. So we can assume that when Paul is here, right now in Troas, he's not idle. He's preaching the word. Before he receives this Macedonian call, he's witnessing, and preaching, and teaching. So he's at Troas. And he has a vision during the night. It must have been like a dream. There was a man of Macedonia standing before God in this vision. One of the first things I thought of was, how did he know he was from Macedonia? I mean, one Greek looks pretty much like another to me. 
People, people get me mixed up all the time. You know, I, I, I've been to England. And there was a time when I was in England and people thought I was Irish. <laughs> Can you believe that? I says, what do you mean? I'm an Ulster man. And English people look at you as so you've got two heads. How did he know? Some commentators speculate that Macedonia was greatly on Paul's mind as a mission field. Something interesting about Troas. Troas was properly named Alexandrian Troas. It was a city that was built in honor of the great Greek or Macedonian conqueror Alexander the Great. Um, the Macedonian military leader who around 300 years before had swept right across the, the Middle East, right across the known world. He'd conquered everything in his path. He died in Persia. And as he died, it alleged he wept because there was no more lands left to conquer. Alexander was the Macedonian hero. He was the Lord Carson of Macedonia. He was, I'm thinking about Northern Ireland's 21st anniversary, you see. He was the embodiment of the Macedonian spirit. He was everywhere in Troas, even though Troas was in modern-day Turkey. There were memorials, there were statues. At that stage, the statues hadn't been torn down. They were still there. And I wonder, as Paul went round the streets of Troas and he saw these relics of Macedonia, did Macedonia come into his mind? I wonder... Was God using the atmosphere of Troas to call Paul to come to Macedonia? There is no doubt that God can use anything, even history, to open our hearts and our minds and to make us aware of the others who need the gospel. How many times have you read an article? Or seen a program about some great need in the world, maybe a famine or a war or a natural disaster, and felt led to do something to contribute to a fund or to send help. Next Lord's Day morning is that you have um, Raymond McLaren coming, and Raymond and I, a number of years ago, were quite a few years ago, we were at the Banner of Truth conference. We were travelling back up to Liverpool to, in a hired car to get the plane back to Belfast. And as you travel towards the airport in Liverpool, there's these massive housing estates stretching out for miles on the side of the motorway. I was keeping my eyes on the road for I was driving. Raymond was sitting in this in the seat beside me, and I distinctly remember him sitting. He was sitting in, in quietness, probably scared of his life, traveling with me on a motorway. And then he said very quietly, look over those big estates. Many people in those estates are perishing, going into a lost eternity. Just saw them. 
the Lord opens your heart to these things. And here's Paul that night. And God speaks to him very directly in this vision by night. And he sends this man, this man of Macedonia. And the Macedonian man says, come over and help us. What a great invitation. Those Macedonians were sinners longing to hear the gospel, needing to hear the gospel, needing help with proclaiming the gospel. And the greatest help that we can ever give to others is to share the good news of Jesus with them. Matthew Henry commentates here, we may sometimes infer a call of God from a call of man. If a man of Macedonia says, come and help us, Paul thence gathers assuredly that God says, go and help them. Ministers may go on with great cheerfulness and courage in their work when they perceive Christ calling them, not only to preach the gospel, but to preach it at this time, in this place, to this people. So he's called in a dream, in a sovereign act of God, to come to Macedonia, to a thriving area of Greece, with huge, bustling cities like Philippi and Thessalonica, to come to the place that is the very gateway into Greece itself, to go on to Athens and to Corinth, a whole nation filled with sinners, fearful of death, worshipping idols, living in helplessness and hopelessness, crying out for peace and good news. God chooses a man and brings him to the point where he is convinced that he must come and preach the gospel to those needy hearts. And finally, we've seen how sometimes God directs our paths by closing doors. And we've seen that there are mission fields full of broken sinners aching to hear the gospel. I want to see the response of the missionary team as they urgently go to seek the lost. Look at verse 10. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavoured to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. He grasped the sense of urgency in those verses. There's no time to be lost when souls are perishing. Immediately they sought how they may travel to Macedonia. There's no delay. Going from Troas to Macedonia involves a journey by sea. Now, if you think of a map of Turkey and Greece, they're right close together. There's only a wee tiny bit of sea in between them. Um, But 
Now they've got to cross that sea. And that's a day's sailing. And Paul and Silas and Timothy and now Luke, the doctor, they must have made their way down to the docks right away, booked a passage right away. When God calls us to do a work for himself, there must be no delay. The Amplified Bible says when he had seen the vision, we, including Luke, tried to go into Macedonia at once. There's not only a sense of urgency, but there is a collective desire. There is, it was Paul that saw the vision, but all of the missionary team have this same sense of urgency. It's a very interesting, but very, very obscure Greek word in verse 10. And it's translated in most English languages here as concluding. Um, here in the authorized version, after he had seen the vision, we endeavored to go into Macedonia assuredly gathering. That's the word that I'm talking about. It's virtually unpronounceable. Um, I'll have a go at it, Symbibazontes, and it seems to imply that they had reached a collective decision. They had gathered That's the meaning of that. They gathered between them that the vision was a true vision, that the Macedonian cry for help was now established among them on a collective basis, that they had discussed it among themselves, that they reached an agreed position. Paul wasn't a pope, you see. Paul didn't go down and say, I've got my vision, and I am to use modern terms, I am now casting my vision to you and you are going to follow me. You'll hear that in some modern churches. They have what they call vision-casting leaders. Have you heard of those? And the, the, the leader will cast his vision that the Lord has given allegedly directly to him. And everybody else in the assembly then has to fall in, has to, to run with the vision, as they say. That's not the case here. And I don't want you to think that. Paul had the vision, but they gathered. And the word is a very strange word, but it's a word that seems to mean that it was an agreed vision, that they all agreed that it was not just Paul's vision, but it was their vision. Paul was an apostle. He was also a missionary. Silas and Luke and Timothy all have a collective say. Matthew Henry again. They gathered assuredly from this that the Lord had called all of them, not just Paul, to preach the gospel there. And they are now all ready to go where God has directed They're going with a steadfastness of purpose. They're going to preach the gospel. They're missionaries. They they had a primary purpose to rescue sinners from a lost eternity. Just a handful of verses. And yet a handful of verses that have a huge strategic significance for you and me. For another new mission field is going to be opened up and we'll see a little bit more about it next week. The missionaries are on the way to Europe. 
They're coming to bring the glorious gospel to us, to the peoples of Europe. So Acts 16 and 11. Um, Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis. Neapolis, the port of Philippi. Primary purpose, specifically called. Paul is excited, and the missionaries are going to put their hands to the ply with great enthusiasm and with great satisfaction and with great numbers of souls being brought into the kingdom of God. And Europe is going to be evangelized. And you and I will benefit from that. 